and streaming on the web since 1996. This is the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. Hello again, I'm Jason Drury, welcoming you to another of the continuing series of film, TV and video game composer interviews on the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. Simon Torfik was born in London, England. He is a producer and composer for short films, documentaries and features, and also a former film festival programme director. Tofik also created the world's first online help desk as founder of the prize-winning tech startup GreenButton.com. The composer recently produced and scored additional music for Imperium, starring Daniel Radcliffe and Tony Collette. He also co-produced and scored She's Lost Control, nominated for two Independent Spirit Awards and winner of the CICAF Forum Prize at the 2014 Berlin Film Festival. Prior to that, Torfeet worked with several prominent directors, including M. Night Shalaman, Mary Harron, and Independent Spirit Award nominee Hussein Ketovich. His latest score is for the HBO documentary The Weight of Gold from director Brett Rapkin. The documentary chronicles what happens mentally to Olympians once the Olympics are over. They feel lost without a constant goal and training. Afterwards, they're left with no teams, no support system, and haven't developed the skills to deal with any of it. The film started as an expose to shock viewers into awareness. Once the 2020 Olympics were postponed, the crew had to adjust for telling of the story to real adversity and also being able to provide hope for those who are suffering and letting them know there's help available to help them overcome their struggles. The 23-time Olympic gold medalist Michael Phelps is the narrator and among the subjects along with Sean White, Bodie Miller, Lolo Jones, Gracie Gold and others. The Way to Gold was premiered on July the 29th when the 2020 Tokyo Olympic Games were set to begin before the event was postponed by the coronavirus pandemic. Simon's score was constantly evolving as the production team would re-navigate the direction of the documentary. The music went from being dark and layered to something with much fewer layers that is more emotional and hopeful. Simon's goal was to get to the core emotions that Olympians experience. The constant stress of asking themselves, am I going to fail, is the flip side of the euphoria and energy of being at the Olympics they train for all their lives. Then the depression and loss of what am I supposed to do next when it's all over? In 
In August 2020, for the Cinematic Sound Radio Network, I talked to Simon Torfik via Zoom at his home in Manhattan, New York. During the interview, we talked about The Weight of Gold, how it evolved as circumstances changed throughout the production process, with a rewarding end result, and his music career to date. Also, during the show, you'll also be hearing music from Simon Torfik, in particular featuring suites from his score for The Weight of Gold. Simon Tofik, tell us about The Weight of Gold. Sure. Uh, it's about the process and the experience of U.S. Olympians after they've completed their initial training and they've competed in the uh, Olympic events. And then they found themselves adrift without mm. a sense of purpose or without the guidance and the, the guiding hand of all of these trainers and the organizations and, and just the mission of aiming towards this life-changing event of the Olympics. And without that, regardless of whether they've meddled or not, they found themselves really lost at the end of that journey. And it's now being recognized as a form of depression, the Olympic drop or the Olympic blues. It's similar to uh, what a lot of people experience when they go through uh, a life-changing event and then everything goes back to normal when it's done. And the difference here is that these are people who have been training and preparing for this event their entire life. So they started at a very young age. And in order to prepare, they've had to block out and eliminate all these other normal aspects of life that we realize prepare you for a normal existence, a normal way of engaging with the world. So they've been practically kept in a cage, for, uh, for lack of a better term, where they're so focused on training and uh, their health and these uh, very specific tasks that don't really apply to any other aspect of life. And then when they're done, they're cast out into the world. And all of these people, uh, this entire ecosystem is gone. And they're left to fend for themselves. And they've not really had the ability or the practice of relating to other people uh, they don't have life skills, whether it's towards employment or whether it's towards academics or, or family. They've been very limited in their preparation for life. And so now that they're on their own, they stumble mentally and in a lot of cases, practically different jobs or lack of it. Uh, and they have succumbed to a lot of suicidality, uh, a lot of depressive and really challenging mental health issues. And so finally, someone, you know, Brett Rapkin, uh, when he was beginning a documentary about Steve Holcomb, he became exposed to this entire epidemic of Olympic athletes who were severely depressed, committing suicide, and it was one after the other. And the pattern was similar. The methods in which they were thinking about or, or actually completing a, their, a suicide was very similar. And, and so it really woke him up to what was going on. And so he went about documenting it and came up with something that is really quite shocking and also not surprising and completely relatable to people who, especially now in the era of COVID, are experiencing a similar kind of isolation 
and there's this feeling of I've been preparing my whole life for something and now I'm stuck in this limbo of being in my home or being stuck in a place where I had all these plans that I was going to do and uh, now I can't I can't realize them and not being able to cope. So it's a, a universally relatable issue. And when we began the documentary, or at least my role in the documentary, uh, it was right before the pandemic hit in the United States. And I did not realize how relatable it, it really would be. And now the Olympics has been postponed for a year. And there's now also a possibility that it may even not happen at all. Yeah. And that was a cloud that was hanging over the film as we were working on it, racing towards a finish line and not knowing if it mattered, not knowing if the film would be received warmly in the absence of the Olympics, because it was intended to be released at the start of the Olympics and very much intended to be a way of revealing the real life consequences, what, what the costs are when you have an event and you have athletes who are working so singularly towards that kind of goal. And so it was intended to, to be released on the opening of the Olympics. And without it, the question was, will people still be interested? The pandemic hit and really set into, dislodged our daily lives, at least in the United States. It was very quickly, it dawned on us that uh, this was a much bigger issue that the film, the topic of the film was covering. So we shifted some aspects of the film uh, so that it would reflect that larger issue of mental health awareness. Was there a consideration to include other athletes outside the United States for the documentary? Yes, it, it's. Uh, I believe it's been documented that this is a, a somewhat universal problem. Brett's access, from what I understand, was limited to the American team, the US team. And he's done a lot of uh, sports documentaries before, and I think his access was particularly good uh, and close to these athletes. So, and it, it, that's the struggle, it's uh, mental health challenges are really difficult for people to speak about anyway. And so it's this taboo subject, it's a hidden secret, and particularly with people in the military, people in uh, law enforcement, people who have careers where they are seen as somewhat superhuman and above the mundane or the, the typical challenges of everyday life. And so with these athletes who were committed to and routinely perform superhuman acts on the playing field, I think that was a, a really difficult challenge for them to overcome, to, to admit to this problem, and then to communicate it, to share it with somebody on camera. So it, it took him a while to develop that trust and that comfort level where they felt like they could uh, share this story with him. So I think that was one aspect of keeping it limited to those athletes that he could access geographically. Uh, and certainly there's, there are athletes who he was communicating with and chose not to participate because of that fear of stigmatization and fear of betraying the image that they have uh, or that the world has of them as uh, being these amazing, capable human beings. How did you get involved with the project? Uh, I knew the producer, uh, Ellen. She is a, a member of the Producers Guild, uh, and uh, as am I. So I produce films as well. And being a, uh, a member of the Producers Guild, I've been involved in different events and uh, committees and things. So, so I knew Ellen from that world. And uh, she had mentioned that uh, she was working on this documentary. And if I had any music that might appeal to the director as they were considering composers. And so I put together a reel of 
of things that I thought might be appropriate and not knowing really anything about the film. She mentioned a couple of podcasts, in fact, that he found interesting. So I put together some uh, some sample material and and then forgot about it. I sent it to her and I got busy with uh, with other projects. And then, you know, being a father and uh, being the, the start of the, the new year and getting things going with school and all of that. And I completely forgot. And then out of the blue, I heard from her and she said, well, the director liked what he heard. Are you available to speak with him and uh, find out more about the project? And so that's uh, that was the start of it. And that was, I think, in January. And so we met, uh, luckily, it was before the pandemic. So we got to meet in person at my studio. And it was one of those meetings where he brought the whole team. So it was uh, Brett, Ellen, and his editor, James Pilot. And, and it was clear from the get-go that they were they had a very specific vision for the film and that they were very keen on getting started pretty quickly. So that first meeting was trial by fire. It was it felt like not only a uh, a meeting uh, to to figure out whether we connected but it also felt like very much a spotting session. How did you go about scoring the white of goat? Well, first finding out from Brett what his intention was in what what was he trying to communicate uh, with this film is it a bunch of profiles of these athletes is it an expose of the olympics it's really a lot of those things combined it's telling the the stories of these individual uh, athletes and also giving us a newfound exposure to what being in the olympics is really like from the inside and so with that understanding i went about trying to flip the the narrative a little bit of what we expect of sports documentaries, where it's particularly Olympic documentaries, where there's a lot of fanfare, there's a lot of pomp and circumstance. This was meant to be something much more intimate, not a cheerleading, wasn't meant to advertise. It was meant to be much more introspective of the uh, the journey of these these athletes and finding out what it feels like to be someone who is stressing about what this experience is like their whole life to get to that point and also to feel very isolated and then abandoned. And so those sounds were very different from what I had seen in, in those kinds of documentaries and films uh, and stories before. So I was trying to really go in the opposite direction of what I've expected in my own limited uh, exposure to sports documentaries, but I was trying to get inside rather than uh, project an outside or larger than life experience. What instrumentation did you use for your school? That was something that, that Brett and I talked at, at length about. He expressed to me how he wanted the sound of well, he asked me the question, what is the sound of a persistent stress, feeling of tension that never goes away? And then also is compounded by the feeling of utter depression and sadness and loss. And so I had to figure out for myself what those feelings represented in sound. And I came out with something that was not quite creepy, but certainly a sound that creeps along with you. And so I I came to a, a distressed string tremor kind of sound uh, that is a persistent character in the score. So I, I was on quite a search for extra techniques and aleatoric approaches to, to chamber strings and solo strings. Uh, and it was meant to be a sound that is grating and irritating. 
but at the same time can somehow blend into the background, uh, the, the fabric of this film. So it was a, a considerable challenge to have something that would put you slightly on edge, but not enough that you notice it because it's so persistent. Uh, so it, it was a challenge in terms of how do you balance that sound and that tone? And then it also has to work with the sound of that loss that Brett uh, described that I thought was best represented by a uh, piano and an instrument called the, it's a sampled instrument uh, that's a combination of the uh, fiddle and a ukulele. So fiddle I think is its, its <laughs> pronunciation. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a hybrid instrument. And I, I ended up experimenting with that with an ebo and coming up with a, a kind of haunting, it felt almost like a, a, a human sound, uh, a human wailing sound or a howl that comes in and out uh, at, di at different points. Also meant to be a ghostly quality that I think hopefully adds to that sense of loss, but also this kind of yearning that these characters have for connection. So piano, those uh, some of those string distress strings, and then Brett and I talked about the score being imbued with a lot of electronics, and for it to be to feel like it is reflective of what these athletes might be listening to a little bit. Again, trying to get inside their head, at least in terms of you know, what are they feeling? How can we somehow get a sense of how they experience this journey? And so I was experimenting with different arpeggios within different synthesizers and trying to come up with a tone that didn't jump out as being uh, overtly electronic, but also had some type of organic quality that could mesh with the emotionality of a piano and strings and sounds that we are more familiar with. So it was a, tr it was a tricky balancing act.
And that was 40 Seconds, The Hush, and The Heroes Fall from the 2020 documentary The Weight of Gold, with music composed by my guest today, Simon Tofik. Now, Simon, how long did it take you to compose the music for The Weight of Gold? Uh, it was the duration of the, the lockdown in New York. So it was almost three months. And that's, that's a generous amount of time, but I will say that uh, it didn't feel like a lot of time because the documentary was shifting along with the events that were unfolding, the events of COVID and all of the uh, phased lockdowns that were taking place and how that was shifting the tone of the film, which now could not be so dark and so challenging in terms of its subject matter or its tone because we're all we're going through such a challenging time. So there was the question of uh, how can we shock people into uh, paying attention without traumatizing people or re-traumatizing people with what uh, with what they're experiencing right now. So that was a challenge. And then we didn't know the fate of the Olympics at that time. So the structure and the running time and a lot of the, the narrative qualities of the film were being revised constantly. So I was in that mode of having to shift a lot of things within the score. So it felt like I was scoring the film multiple times. How much did the COVID pandemic affect your compositions? Surprisingly a lot. It, it was as I was trying to relate to these characters and what they were going through, feeling isolated, feeling abandoned and feeling that persistent stress of what's going to happen when this is all over, I was feeling all of those things. Uh, the stress of what's going on uh, right now with our world and uh, particularly living in New York in the epicenter of the pandemic uh, at the time. So it was a constant reminder of your place uh, and your insignificant place in this larger narrative and, and yet also feeling very stressed and very tense about the, the health and well-being of, of loved ones. Uh, and then that feeling of dislocation and not knowing where you sit in this, in this larger story. So I felt very much like I was a character in this story. So I was experiencing parallel feelings of, uh, of that stress level and that depression. And uh, as someone who luckily has never really experienced depression on a clinical or uh, on a severe level like that, uh, it felt like the, the most I've ever experienced uh, those feelings. So uh, as I'm writing it, I realized I wasn't channeling so much of just the Olympic athletes, but also of my own feelings. Being in the middle of all of this and not knowing what's going to happen uh, when uh, the dust settles. How was the score to the Weight of Gold recorded? Uh, yeah, I, I did some recording here at home, and then I worked with some string musicians in New York, and they recorded it in their home. We had hoped to record in a proper studio, but in the States, uh, I have a studio in Midtown Manhattan, and that building has been locked down by order of the governor. So all of those office buildings are closed. So I wasn't able to access that. And then we were debating whether or not we could record some strings and piano in Iceland which had opened up, at least at the time, and I hope they're still doing this, they were one of the first places that opened up their large-scale recording facilities. Uh, but the shifting schedule of the film prevented us from being able to have enough time to make that work. 
So a good portion of the film, the score is, is sampled and, and a lot of it's electronic. So a lot of it was done here.
and that was Human, Conveyor Belt and Go For Broke from the 2020 score The Weight of Gold with music composed by my guest today Simon Torfik. Now Simon how did you get into film music? Uh, by accident. Uh, I was a struggling songwriter in college uh, studying to be uh, a diplomat. Uh, I had no intention or idea that I had any aptitude or talent for this. So I was going about my way. I was a student at NYU. And then a friend introduced me to her friend, M. Night Shyamalan. And we were just two struggling students. We became fast friends immediately. And he started to introduce me to his world of film studies and also his passion for music. And we really bonded on how music was transformative to our lives. And through that friendship and through my own discovery, I realized that what I was passionate about, I thought it was philosophy and political science and doing things that, uh, that could change the world. I was still passionate about those things, but I realized my world was being changed by artists and particular musicians. And movies were a passion as well, but it felt like a very distant reality. Movies were something that I enjoyed, but I didn't really know how they were made or what was involved. And so through my friendship with Knight, uh, he would take me to his classes and I got to see firsthand how movies were made. And then he would take me to his film set and he would share his scripts with me and, and his dreams. Of, this is what I'm, this is how I want to become a director. This is, these are the kind of stories I want to tell and just bouncing ideas off of me and encouraging me to pursue my own passion of music. And while I didn't entirely see that as a future for myself, I really got invested in the idea of someday I'll save enough money and I'll be able to quit my job and, and I can focus on music for no other reason than that was just something I enjoyed doing. I didn't even envision a career doing it. And then uh, along the way, I got into a career in technology. I invented a, a specific technology that spawned a tech startup. And that was a detour for a few years. And when I left that world, I had to decide what it is that I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And it was very clear to me that music was what I wanted more than anything else. And so I had to then discover what do I want to do in music. And I flirted with the idea of producing other artists, you know, kind of like a, a Brian Eno or Daniel Lenoir or Rick Rubin type of producer role, because I wasn't convinced of my own talent as a musician. I was a, a songwriter and guitarist, and I'd been in bands and things, but not to the extent that uh, I saw myself sounding or uh, having the ability of those that I was a big fan of, like uh, Radiohead or Jeff Buckley or, or, or artists like that. And then while I was in this experimentation phase of figuring out what I wanted to do with music, a friend of mine was producing a short film and asked me if I would be interested in scoring that. We just got together for, we we're catching up over coffee and I told him about my exploration in music. And he said, well, I'm doing this movie and we, it was a short film and we need a composer if you'd consider that. So I met with the director and we hit it off right away. Musically, we were on the same page. And I didn't know what I was doing in scoring that film, but I knew what the story needed emotionally. And somehow uh, was able to score it. And the film worked out really well. It won a bunch of awards. And then her circle, she was a Columbia film student. Her circle of film students also liked what I did and started asking me to score their films. 
and then that spawned one after the other and then uh, uh, got me to where I am now. Just uh, It was really just learning as I go. How do you choose your projects? Uh, it's tricky because it's very tempting to choose projects that you think are going to be big successes. Having something that's popular or loved is one goal, but I've learned... And really, it's it's about uh, picking the people, the right people to work with, more so than the project. And I've certainly been guilty of this before, where I've picked a project thinking that it's going to be this this grand success, despite reservations about the people. And you grit your teeth and you make your sacrifices because you think everyone thinks it's going to be a big hit, whether creatively or commercially, and you struggle through it. And you get to the end and you have something that you're proud of, but it's such a painful process that you can't enjoy what you came up with. And you find that that's a, a universal feeling, uh, but it impacts what you do and how it comes out. And more importantly, it can really poison the passion and the, uh, the intentions uh, of what you're doing. And I found that when that happens, it's very difficult to recover from, uh, let alone to enjoy and feel proud of what you've done. So I've, I've been focusing on finding the right collaborators, people that I relate to and people who I would want to just spend time with. And regardless of making a movie together, so just finding people that have similar uh, passions, similar goals, uh, and just people that you, when the pressure is on and uh, the deadlines are facing you like a bad bouncer at a club, you feel comfortable in taking chances and making those sacrifices because you know it's going to be appreciated and you know when you stumble, these are people who are going to help you to, to overcome that challenge and to recover. Uh, and so I try to go to the film set. If I'm commissioned early on in, in a project, I'll try to go and connect with the crew, the actors, and in particular, the director, and find out what they're thinking about as they're making the film. Uh, sometimes I can contribute some music to just help with the, the vibe and to communicate things to the actors that might help as the director is uh, trying to motivate them towards uh, different performances. So it's really trying to be part of that creative team in whatever way makes sense that's welcome and that's helpful and finding people who are open to that kind of collaboration.
And that was Intro, War Torn and Relax from the 2019 documentary Ursula von Reidingsgrad into her own about a woman's struggle to overcome the hardship of her upbringing and to follow her calling to become an artist with original music composed by our guest today, Simon Torfik. Now Simon, is your approach to scoring documentaries different from composing your music for short films? My approach is similar, but I found that the experience is different. So my approach is to blueprint and channel the emotions that the director wants to communicate to the audience. And so that's the goal. So that's the approach that I take from the outset. But I realized that in short films, there's not enough time to do that in the way in which I'm envisioning can be done because as a composer, you you can, once they give you that permission to chart that emotional landscape, you can really get ahead of yourself. And in a short film, there's not so much time where you can have that much music without really walking over the story. And so you really do have to pull back a lot. And I've also found that directors, when they're making a short film, they're still discovering how they are uh, telling a story. And so a lot of times there is this unease and this fear that by using music, they're somehow, they're cheating and not uh, being effective storytellers. But over the course of our collaboration, usually find out that that is part of their toolbox of storytelling. And it's just as effective as voiceover. It's just effective as cinematography and all the other aspects that are unique to filmmaking. And so hopefully uh, we learn that language together. And also part of the unique challenge of scoring a short film is that uh, they're telling a story in which you can only tell in a short form. It's not long enough to tell the kind of story that you would, it's not a miniature feature film. And so they're, they're navigating a new way of, of telling a story in a lot of ways. They're able to take chances because the scale isn't so vast and the consequences aren't so dire with large budgets. And the hope is that uh, the film score side, you can take chances as well. And I found that actually is similar to documentary scoring, but for a very interesting opposite reason. So whereas in short films, there's not enough time to tell that story musically, in documentaries, there's an abundance of time to tell a lot of story with music. And so for that reason, I found that it's similarly a great canvas for experimental approaches, for taking chances musically. Because a lot of times you will have long shots of establishing a location or setting up part of the story. And there's obviously a lot of voiceover in documentary and that needs help at times so that you can try to communicate to the audience that the story is continuing as they're telling their tale and their account. And you're trying to help that along by uh, telling the story with them while they're just sitting there. So I found that the two forms are, are similar in that respect, even though they, they're manifest in different ways, very little music and a lot of music, but the freedom and the chance to explore are similar. Which director collaborations have been the most enjoyable for you? Uh, 
Well, let's see. Uh, I've certainly uh, enjoyed working with Dennis Lee uh, on Jesus Henry Christ. That was a, a trial by fire in some ways because uh, that was my first major feature film. What was particularly enjoyable and also uh, exhilarating about that experience and frightening at the same time was I was working with my mentor, uh, the composer and guitarist David Torn on that project. And he was a real uh, guiding hand in that process. As a guitarist, I admired his, his amazing albums and his virtuosity. And as I shifted to becoming a composer, the thought of being able to work with someone like him was just, I couldn't even imagine it. It was uh, just uh, beyond my expectations. So there was a lot of uh, imposter syndrome that I had to overcome when working with him. Uh, and his technique and craft is second to none. And so it was a very exacting process for me. And that contributed to the trial by fire, uh, learning an enormous amount about film scoring uh, and about just uh, how to preserve the musical integrity of the score and not get lost in just scoring uh, moment to moment in a film or in a scene and trying to keep in mind that this is a musical moment as well. And so that when you listen to the piece, it should have that kind of integrity. You know, working with your heroes uh, is a daunting challenge. While it's uh, a great thing to imagine, when you're faced with it, it becomes uh, quite horrifying uh, because your work is never good enough in your own head uh, anyway. And then to be putting it in front of one of your heroes, you know, thinking back on it, it's, uh, I'm, I'm amazed that that score got done. But uh, I'm really proud of what we did together because he was uh, somebody who pushed me to a new level. Uh, so that was an exhilarating experience. And just to have my name alongside his is just a, a, one of the greatest honors. And then uh, another film and filmmaker that I uh, really enjoyed working with uh, is Anya Marquardt uh, on her film, uh, She's Lost Control. Her film was uh, one where she took a lot of chances. It was her first feature film. And she took a lot of chances and she gave me real freedom in trying whatever I wanted to. This particular film was quite minimal in its uh, visual storytelling style. And similarly, the, the score, uh, very uh, restrained, uh, but I found uh, worked really well with uh, the kind of story that she was trying to tell. And, and she really just gave me uh, a lot of confidence in taking chances. And what was interesting about that process was uh, I was playing her uh, a lot of the rough mixes that I had done uh, with the intention of re-recording the instruments and then having uh, someone mix the score, a proper mixer doing that. And so during the process, she really liked what I had, I had put together in the rough mixes and the rough, the scratch uh, takes that I had performed. And then when I brought in the professionals, quote unquote, uh, and then uh, played her the refined mixes, uh, she had a feeling of uh, where a lot of the energy and the, the passion that she had heard in the rough takes was gone. It was ironed out. And, uh, and so it was a process of going back to earlier takes and the, the rough mixes that I had done that she preferred. And it was a process of, again, this imposter syndrome of 
really getting over yourself and uh, and feeling, I guess, uh, a sense of pride in your own work and confidence in your own work. And I, I ended up getting that through her ears and through her eyes, uh, saying, "No, there is uh, a quality here, and there's a there's a character and an approach here that that you need to focus on and need to cherish on some level, without being precious about it." Because the, the other part was, she definitely gave me uh, a lesson in not being precious about your work and just trying things uh, and throwing things out that don't work, but having the freedom to just uh, experiment, which is what I really enjoy about working with young filmmakers and filmmakers in the independent film scene where there's not these stakes where the world is riding on the release of the film. And in that case, the film did considerably well. It won at Berlin and it got nominated for a bunch of prominent awards and uh, and has led to her career just taking off. So that was a wonderful collaboration. And it continued throughout the release of that film. When the distributor did a um, a trailer, she asked me for some of the the outtakes from the score. And I saw that as an opportunity to do a retake. And so I scored the, the trailer with a lot of music that I hadn't been able to write for the film, uh, but then formulated a more refined idea of what the story meant and where I would take the the score if I had the chance, if there was another 15 minutes in the film. So that was a wonderful opportunity. And we got to collaborate on that process as well. And uh, we're really proud of what, how the score for the trailer came out as well. So that was a, a fun uh, example of continuing our, our collaboration. Would you like to score more features in future? Uh, I, I'm not trying to limit myself to any, a particular format. Uh, I do like short films because they do offer the opportunity to work with new talent, uh, with different approaches to storytelling. But certainly uh, my focus is uh, narrative feature films. I had never intended to to score documentary films, uh, in fact, uh, and that was just a happy accident uh, where the narrative directors, the, the feature directors that I had worked with on some of their smaller projects, they were just exploring new subjects. Uh, so for example, Sofian Khan, he was one of the co-directors of uh, The Interpreters. And then this was a project that uh, he shared with me after we did uh, a narrative short together. And I was so blown away by the, uh, the subject. And it was about uh, refugees from uh, uh, Iraq and Iran and uh, the Middle East who are working with uh, the coalition forces as interpreters. Uh, but I'd not intended to uh, score documentaries. I was actually afraid of them because there is so much music. There's so much uh, heavy lifting sometimes required on documentaries that uh, I wasn't sure I was up to the task. So uh, my focus has, has from the beginning was uh, for feature films and then uh, Shorts and documentaries were these wonderful detours that have become uh, a big part of what I do.
That was Reinterpret and Ascent to Freedom from the 2018 documentary The Interpreters, with original music composed by our guest today, Simon Torfik. Now, Simon, you are also a producer of documentaries and films. Can you tell us how that came about? And do you see yourself as a composer, a producer, or in fact, both? Uh, well, certainly both. Uh, and and I say that because uh, my producing predated my composing, but I wasn't producing in the traditional sense. When I was running a tech startup, 
before I shifted careers and got into music and film, I was essentially doing what producers do every day, which is uh, leading teams, encouraging and supporting collaboration and creative ideas, finding money, finding support for these films and resources. So I was doing all of that in the startup world. And that entrepreneurial spirit is something that I thought I had left behind when I jumped into the creative realm. And then when I started composing these films, uh, I saw that there weren't enough hands to help. There weren't enough resources and there wasn't enough time or money. So when there was an opportunity, when you're working with people who are open to that kind of help, I rolled up my sleeves and I started to help. And the more I did that, the more it became evident to me that I was stretching beyond what uh, my role as a composer really is defined as. Uh, and so, for example, when Anya asked me to score, she's lost control. Uh, and then one day I pitched the film to a wealthy benefactor friend of mine, uh, literally in an elevator. Uh, she asked me, what are you working on? And by the time the elevator doors opened, she asked me how she could invest in the film. So when I told Anya about this, uh, she said, you know, you're producing. Uh, so can you help produce this film? And I was excited to do so. And then when that film became a success, it spawned more requests from filmmakers who I'd worked with previously and then new filmmakers to see if I could help them in a similar way. And in some cases, I end up scoring and producing on the same film. And in other cases, it's one or the other. So I'm happy to do whatever I can to help tell that story, whether it's musically or whether it's uh, as this logistical or this creative collaborator, uh, but more so on, on a producerial end. And then that led to uh, being asked to teach students about producing at NYU, which I've been doing for the last couple of years and now have just created a new certificate program for them, which is a handful of courses about producing to help young producers, whether they're coming from directing or they're coming from business or other professional pursuits, and figuring out how to wear those many hats that uh, being a producer sometimes entails. Now, concerning your music, what do you see as your musical influences? Uh, well, it's, it, I think it's governed by the limitations, uh, which is I'm not formally trained. So my abilities to compose are, are limited to uh, sounds and those approaches that I'm passionate about, more so than anything else. So there's not this muscle memory of I'm just going to write based on my training. I'm writing music that uh, is coming from the collaboration of story or storyteller. And that's what more than anything is governing the, the notes and the sound. And I didn't realize that until very late into the process. And I've found that with directors that I've uh, worked with repeatedly, that's the piece that they have been drawn to the most is that hand tailored uh, approach, which is they said this in some way, shape or form that it feels like I'm, I'm tailoring or customizing the notes to, uh, to their film. And that comes from the economy of notes, because I'm not, again, writing based on a preconceived notion of, 
a mode or a key. I'm really getting into the DNA of the the film. And uh, I think that comes from uh, also the kind of music that I've, I've been drawn to myself, which is music that uh, is hard to separate from the film. So I think of composers like uh, Johan Johansson, Johnny Greenwood, Atticus Ross and Trent Reznor, or Mika Levy. So these are, to me, uh, sounds and uh, scores that feel uniquely specific to their filmmakers, to their, uh, to their stories. And uh, I don't necessarily hear them as uh, standalone pieces of music that would exist in their own right outside of the film, they certainly do. I enjoy them immensely by listening uh, to them myself uh, without picture. But there are also pieces of music that I don't know if those composers would have written without being in that collaboration. So listening to Radiohead as a young songwriter, listening to Nine Inch Nails, uh, and somehow overlapping those sounds uh, of alternative and raw rock and roll and and also a minimalist approach as well, where there's a room for space, room for stretching musically and instrumentally. Uh, I think both of those bands uh, take chances. And it's sometimes hard to uh, categorize where they come from and, and what their sound is. They're simply drawn to what the, uh, the inspiration is or what the, what the idea is. And, uh, and they let that uh, govern where they go. And that's been a very exciting thing to experience as a listener. And so I've, I've been trying to get closer to that idea of composing music that I would want to listen to. Uh, and more so than just composing music that fits the scene. At some point, I want people to think that only one person could have composed this. Like this feels like uh, it is of that collaboration this this came from the collaboration between this filmmaker and this musician and uh and it otherwise would not have existed so that's my hope and what i'm getting to as a composer now which projects have you just completed and which covid permitting of course i hope to work on in the near future uh i have a number of projects that i'm working on uh i just finished last night in fact the score for a film that, that I executive produced called uh, The Sleepless, uh, which is about two insomniacs who meet in the middle of the night and, in a random deli in the middle of night in Brooklyn and uh, walk the streets of Brooklyn. And by morning, they become more than just strangers. So that's a film that I just finished. And uh, I have a couple of films that start uh, in September, one that starts shooting and one that uh, is in post-production. Uh, I can't talk about those just yet, but uh, I'm excited. Uh, they're both uh, also narrative feature films. Uh, one is a thriller uh, slash heist film, and uh, and the other is a drama. So I'm excited about those as well. We'll it remains to be seen whether the COVID pandemic is going to affect when they're come to the light of day. But uh, at the same time, I'm I'm still excited about getting started on new material, telling these stories. I also, there is another film uh, I neglected to mention uh, called The Invisible, which is about gay women songwriters in Nashville 
who have uh, been uh, writing uh, some of the, the most incredible music in country music. And until now, no one knew that the writers of these wonderful songs uh, were gay. And so it's a, a story about them coming out and, and struggling to exist in that genre of music in that part of the world. Uh, so that's the film that I scored just before uh, The Weight of Gold. And uh, we're hoping to see a release of that film shortly. Uh, so, so there's a number of things that are that have just been finished and are uh, on the way. How would you like to see your future career developing? Uh, well, I I hope to be uh, scoring more films that are taking chances. So I'm hoping that by the exposure of uh, the weight of gold, that uh, musically and narratively it it sends the message that I'm I'm looking to uh, take some chances with story and with score. And so I'd like to continue to pursue films that, whether documentary or feature, can take chances. Uh, I'd, I'd like to continue that, uh, that handcrafted approach to film scoring. And so working with new directors like that and, uh, and more musicians, I, I've loved working with the mixer uh, Jake Jackson at Air Studios in London. Uh, and so I'm, I'm hoping to to continue that collaboration. And also as a producer, uh, I'm, I have a number of films uh, that I'm producing that we're casting now, and those are certainly taking chances with story. So I hope to be doing films on a larger canvas uh, through producing. And then uh, I'm also a, a founding partner of a, a venture where we are uh, developing media campus uh, facilities in different parts of the country. Uh, that are meant to open uh, access to the film industry, to communities and neighborhoods that wouldn't normally have access to it, uh, through training, through internships and things like that. And uh, these are campus facilities that would be sound stages and production offices and post-production facilities. These are much larger scale kind of projects that involve enormous amounts of money and, and, and resources and lots of people. So I'm very excited about that. And uh, that's also bringing together my creative sensibilities, but also my entrepreneurial background in an exciting way. And uh, that has, that's a project that I hope to be sharing some very exciting news about uh, in the coming months. And finally, where can we see The Weight of Gold? And uh, will there be a soundtrack album available very soon? Uh, you can see it on HBO. It's currently airing there. And uh, so if you have uh, conventional uh, cable uh, or satellite TV, it's available there. And it's also available on streaming on the HBO Max uh, platform. In terms of a soundtrack album, that's something that we've been discussing, and uh, uh, I hope that we can work out the logistics. It's always a matter of, first and foremost, does the music stand up to that kind of scrutiny? And I hope that it does. And if so, then uh, do the logistics make sense? Because there's a lot of people and uh, processes that have, to, that have to work together to make that happen. So we're in the process of doing that now. Someone Torfik, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for joining us. I do hope you enjoyed my interview with producer and composer Simon Torfik. I leave you with some more music from Simon's score for The Weight of Gold. 
a documentary which I thoroughly recommend you check out if you can. The piece is called The Weight of Gold. My thanks again for Summon Tofik for joining us today. And until we meet again, for me, Jason Drury, is take care and happy listening. for listening to the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. I'd like to thank Tim Burden for providing his voice on the promising things you have heard throughout the programme and Derek Osinna for providing Cinematic Sound Radio's theme music. If you have any questions, comments and concerns, please email us at cinematicsound at yahoo.com. You can also find us on social media at Radio on Twitter and Cinematic Sound on Facebook. And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please take a moment right now to rate the show. And what a brief review. Reviews help introduce potential new listeners to the station. And while you're at it, head over to Tee Public and get a Cinematic Sound Radio t-shirt. And don't forget to check out Cinematic Sound Radio at cinematicsound.net.